Be good. <laughs> Hello there. Thanks for tuning in to the Monkey Tooth Podcast. This is Andrew. I'm with my wife Tiffany and our little dog Pele. We're traveling around in our custom-built Sprinter van on our way down to Argentina. We're currently in Scottsdale, Arizona, hanging out with some friends. We had a great time this weekend. We went down to Bisbee, Arizona. Highly, highly suggest checking out Bisbee. Go down there, spend some money, go see this really cool bike museum. There's a guy there who makes, uh, who roasts coffee that's out of this world. Um, it's just a, it's a great place, Bisbee, Arizona. Uh, it's not just the home of Doug Stanhope. There are lots of cool and fascinating people down there. Uh, I didn't bring any podcast recording gear with me. We were just there hanging out and I kind of wish I had because we met several really interesting people. So go down to Bisbee. Um, all right. Today's episode is with our new friend, Garrett McGowan. Garrett is tough to describe because he's done so many different things. Uh, you can just start off by saying he's a father and a good guy. That should cover it, but it doesn't because he's been uh, a serial entrepreneur. He's developed many businesses. He has uh, been a conservationist, a river guide, an experienced whitewater kayaker, uh, and just an adventurous um, world traveler type of guy. I found him to be very interesting and fascinating, and we had a good conversation. Uh, we just met, uh, and then suddenly I put a microphone in his face. And he was gracious enough to just kindly tell me his tale. Um, yeah, we uh, we did that in Denver, Colorado. This is, uh, I think we've got two more episodes left of season one. Did you know we were going to have seasons? I didn't. This is season one. This is episode number 38 of our show. We've got two more to go, and then we are hitting pause. Tiffany and I are going to uh, Los Angeles, where we were looking for work. I'm actually going to be working for a couple weeks up in the Bay Area uh, uh, in mid-November. And then uh, we'll be back in Los Angeles and, and trying to make some dough because we've spent a bunch of dadgum money that we did not intend on spending on repairs to our van and our dog. So uh, anyhow, we're, the journey continues, but it's going to be um, peppered with a little bit of uh, trabajo, as they would say down south. Okay, um, I'm going to get right to this episode. Uh, oh yeah, thanks to our patrons. We love you. Patreon.com forward slash monkey tooth if you're interested in supporting this podcast. It is tremendously helpful. Um, you can leave a review on iTunes. That always helps. We like those. And if you want to learn more about what music we're playing on the show, go to our website, mtp.dog. Uh, you can leave comments. You can send us emails. Um, yeah, there's, there's plenty going on. Okay. Uh, this is Garrett McGowan. Great guy. I hope you like what he has to say. Uh, share, enjoy. Ta-ta for now. There's probably three things that have been drivers for me. Um, and it's been entrepreneurship and, and innovation, building, creating things, uh, in a broader sense, social good, um, poverty reduction, development, and, uh, and then rivers, 
Hmm. Ironically, whitewater kayaking has been one of the drivers that have taken me to the geographic places and yeah. then finding, finding my ways through those paths, uh, through my other interests and endeavors. Water is a good unifier for wealth and poverty. It sure is. I mean, it's the, uh, it's the basis of life. Mm-hmm. It's the 70% of us and yeah. and 70% of the world that we're in. And uh, it's a metaphor for so many things. For me, especially moving water is mm-hmm. such a metaphor. And um, from our state of mind and uh, the way we perform in yeah. the world. And, you know, for me, the, the river has been, as, as a whitewater kayaker for over 20 years, the the river has taught me more than all of the degrees and all of the businesses I found because it taught me about me. Yeah. You know, and it taught me about how I interact in the world without the the noise and the the way people perceive you because yeah. it's a it's a very intimate personal experience. And it takes it's a different language that moving water, particularly rivers, speak. I've I've just recently started to kind of get a glimpse of this through having met some river guides, a guy who was a river guide in Costa Rica and and took us on a dory in the Yellowstone mm-hmm. and having talked with another guy who built his own boats and you can actually read a river mm-hmm. and you learn uh, what to look out for and what to, I don't know, what to expect from a, the way an eddy is moving or the way water's falling over a rock. You can kind of tell things. Um, and one of the most interesting insights was, think about it, if, if you weren't in the boat, the boat would probably be fine. <laughs> you know, the boat would make it down the river just fine if you weren't in it. So uh, learning to navigate and read a river in a way that is... You don't get in the way of the river has been really interesting to me. It's true. I mean, you know, many people think of taking a trip down a river as a journey from A to B, but it's uh, it's not linear in that way, especially when you think of whitewater rivers as uh, you never learn a river. You never learn the, the path because it's constantly changing. Hmm. So the journey is or the end result is in the journey itself and yeah. you know you can pass by the same spot on a river 50 times over the course of a few months and every time you go past it it's slightly different than it was the day before so it's all point a it's all point b that's right You're yeah. like a quantum state of of travel that's it and there's great great humility i think that comes from that and mm-hmm. for someone like me whose mind is always wandering and my body is is usually following uh there's a sense of, of presence yeah. that you get in that space that I haven't been able to replicate in many other aspects of my life. You're talking about your uh, various degrees. You started college in 92? Yeah, I was uh, in Texas. I started at the University of Texas in, in Austin back in the day when Austin was still very weird. Yeah. And uh, a really cool place. And uh, went through three years of business school and was a year from graduating and uh, had just become a young dad and um, had this vision, ironically, with a little bit of a hangover on New Year's Day. (laughs) I had a vision of what my future was going to look like, and um, it scared the shit out of me. Yeah. And uh, I ended up uh, going on a a little pilgrimage to to Colorado to to find myself, and found myself, I dropped out of school and moved into the mountains and found new passions, climbing mountains, riding down them and, and whitewater rivers at that time. So I ended up going back to school to study uh, environmental science at the University of Colorado, focusing on rivers. And I actually ended up doing my honors research uh, 
on the endangered fish of the Grand Canyon. Oh, wow. And I uh, thought I was on a fast track to a career in environmental protection and conservation and um, decided to take a kayaking trip with my best friend to Africa and found ourselves in Zambia and Zimbabwe in 2000, right when, uh, this was right around the time Robert Mugabe yeah. uh, and the ZANU-PF were taking over white farms and there was all this chaos happening. It was also the near the peak of the AIDS crisis in, mm. in Zambia, so the mortality we saw there was like nothing I'd ever seen in my life. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I guess it kind of changed my worldview pretty pretty profoundly at that time like here I was this you know entitled white kid from the mm -hmm. US worried about um, the environment and then seeing people um, suffering at a pretty alarming rate Huge, yeah so I uh, I decided to immediately turn around and uh, apply for graduate school um, in it was the School of Community and Regional Planning at the University of British Columbia but essentially what I ended up doing was studying development economics and uh, decided that you know the the root cause of the problems that I wanted to tackle were in uh, in people's livelihoods hmm. first and foremost. So I ended up uh, taking that path for what turned out to be the next eight years of my life before the the next big life pivot. Yeah. So I want to take it back to uh, your vision, that hungover vision. It's moments <laughs> like that really interest me. Uh, so you were you were on track for business. Mm -hmm. You you saw how did it go down? What was your vision? Well, um, so my dad was an, an attorney for Exxon. Mm. He was uh, on all of the awful stories you remember from your youth about Exxon, whether it was the Valdez or some mining uh, battle. Um, my dad was what I considered at the time on the side of the bad guys. Yeah. You know, I grew up in boom and bust oil time. Mm -hmm. Texas, you know, we had family friends that had a hundred million and then were bankrupt and then had a hundred million again. And it was the wild west of the, the oil era. And, uh, and most of my friends I grew up with were kind of moving into to fields like that. And, um, it was a very conservative world. Um, although my family wasn't that way, a pretty religious world as well. And, uh, things, my mother's German. I grew up in Japan and lived in Asia as a child. And I had a little different life experience than my yeah. peers during my formative years. And, uh, and I just had this vision of being my dad and my family's circle of kind of narrow, narrow thinking, at least of course, as a 19, 20 year old kid, right. you know, <laughs> saw this like narrow worldview and a, and a bubble, a very comfortable and nice bubble for many people, but one that I, I realized that I had a profound fear of and that my, my path was something that was maybe a little bit broader in scope. Yeah. So um, I had this vision of like waking up one day and paying a mortgage and having three kids and, you know, needing the next nicest car and buying expensive suits and uh i wanted to run around the world barefoot and um, <laughs> hug trees and yeah. <laughs> climb mountains so <laughs> the gilded cage was not for you not for yeah me. i get that so okay you've gone from there and in africa a whitewater rafting trip wait so no i'm sorry it was the the grand canyon that got you interested in the the fish and so you're First degree was in 
It was an environmental in, environmental policy. Uh, policy. Is actually, what it was in. Okay. Yeah. So I was looking at the Endangered Species Act and you know how it was and and dams in yeah. particular and how they were uh, um, impacting you know native species and wildlife. That was mm -hmm. my undergrad research for my honors and uh, and I thought I knew where I wanted to be. I was mm -hmm. voraciously reading the literature and. Uh, very passionate, a big advocate for for the environment until that first trip to Africa to go kayaking, and boy, that that shook everything up. Yeah, it's tough, man. I mean, there's got to be people doing that work, you know. It's there's got to be somebody researching the fish and researching what policy gets made. But to your insight of almost follow the money, mm -hmm. you know, it's almost like you took the vision that you had and you saw the the other side of it. So, okay, well here's where the money comes from. I know I know how these things, these atrocities are funded. I'll go I'll attack it from that end. So you did that in British Columbia? I did. I did my masters in, in British Columbia. And, and uh yeah, ended up staying there for eight years. Wow. And what were you working on there? What was the uh So my uh I was really fortunate to have a a thesis advisor for my master's degree, Dr. John Friedman, who is one of the legends in the, the field of planning, and he was a radical planner, and he was actually a contract, he was an Austrian, went to the University of Chicago in the era in the 50s, and yeah. he just passed away last year, and yeah, uh, he was in Chile working for USAID, and um, uh, during the Allende years, and he predicted a fascist overthrow of the government mm. and got thrown out of the country. And within a year later, um, Pinochet, Pinochet had taken over. And so he he was an interesting cat. He wrote imagine. some uh, a, a prolific writer and you know a philosopher and um, just one of those special minds in the world. Yeah. A, 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 a cellist and a, wow. a poet and so I ended up uh, getting to be his last student wow and because uh, he was an honorary professor and I said I want to work with you and he took me on which was awesome yeah. and that was three years of never talking about research <laughs> we would always meet at a Shaolin noodle house in, <laughs> in, in Vancouver and talk about the you know the next world economy and you know how to change the world and he helped me start thinking in, in different terms but i ended up doing my master's thesis research ironically going back to africa um to livingston zambia and the zambezi river where i'd been and uh did my work on what's called pro-poor tourism and i saw how the tourism industry in in zambia and zimbabwe at that time was uh, foreign dominated uh, the only local jobs were very low-paying, almost subsistence-level jobs, and then there was this growing wealth that was happening there, and, and the government wasn't doing anything really to support it. They were offering all the incentives for the for the foreign direct investment, but uh, not bringing anything back to the people. So, I ended up doing my work on pro-poor tourism, which is how you can orient the. Uh, the tourism industry towards poverty reduction mm. and did that in in livingston around around the tourism the adventure sports tourism industry yeah. there and uh three different three different times there working with the zambian government local chiefs um the the foreigners that ran the adventure sports and, and tourism industry and kind of put that thesis together actually ended up doing a small documentary film Oh, what's it, it as well. Uh, riding the wave of Nyami Nyami. 
right in the way of Nyami Nyami. Nyami 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 is the river god, the protectorate river god of the Zambezi. Okay. And whole interesting story yeah. in itself, but kind of one of the icons of that of that place. So that's really cool. Yeah, I ended up doing that interestingly enough, all that work and you know, a lot of the stuff that I worked on my thesis on, this was in two thousand four, has really started to come to life. Like I went there to river guide because there were mostly foreigners going in there to run the river now it's almost exclusively locals wow, so there's very, very few uh, so it worked the yeah i mean i i won't take the credit for it but i think sure. that the path was you know the it was going to happen sooner mm. or later anyways but um you know just a number of different people aside from myself kind of identifying it and uh identifying alternatives and really engaging with the local population yeah. to understand what their challenges are rather than this kind of top-down patriarchal approach yeah. I mean, it, it's got to be tricky even to call it pro-poor is a weird way to put it because you're taking people that were probably likely not in the money economy you know and then suddenly they're in the money economy and they're poor and they went from having no money and not dealing in money, suddenly having like very little money, and then they're poor. That's right. And then they, now they have to be in the economy. That's kind of that's got to be tricky to navigate. Not to use a river pun, but right. you know that, that you've got to you've got to take people who weren't who never had a concept of rich or poor, and then make okay. So now you're poor, mm-hmm. and now you need a job. But at least it's a cool job. I mean, the yeah. river and tourism and doing things like that has got to be kind of fun to be able to showcase your country and your your land and the things you're proud of and and love that's it when i was there it was some some of the first indigenous guys were being uh trained as guides so it was a a pretty pretty new endeavor and some of those guys were uh you know supporting families of 10 plus with you know i've I was a river guide here all through college, and it's, you're, not making a lot, you're not making a lot of money, and there you're making even less. But yeah. it was so substantial for folks that were used to living under a dollar a day yeah. in a subsistence economy. But really what was the, the interesting part for me that got me thinking about that topic were the porters there. And to get down to the river to run the rapids, you've got a, you know, a few hundred meters super steep slope through the jungle and pretty mm-hmm. aggressive baboons you're trying to navigate to get to the put-in. And then you run this whole river, and it's hot, and it's huge. This is enormous water. It can yeah. be the size of the Mississippi in a whitewater canyon. And uh, and then the takeout to, to get back out of the canyon is about three 400 vertical feet up on uh, sticks and logs that have been tied together with twine straight up a, a cliffside and you're doing it with a 50 pound kayak on your back and 100 degree weather so wow. um, there became this whole kind of informal sector industry of uh, young kids working as porters and these kids would just hang out they'd hike down in the morning hang out at the river and uh you know wait for some change to be able to carry boats up out of the canyon and they would do it you know barefoot sometimes you know 80 90 pound 12 year old kids with two kayaks one on each arm running up a cliffside and you know you give them a, most people give them a buck you know and wow. you know, we always tried to kind of take care of them because as we got to know them over the months we were there we learned that uh you know some of these kids were actually supporting their parents and being that it was at the peak of the aids crisis some of these villages um you know there were you would see people that were over 40 or 50 and you would see kids under 10 and there was no like my demographic at the time in my 20s it didn't exist they had all died so a lot of times you know young preteens were supporting their grandparents and their extended families by running trips 
up and down these wow. up and down these canyons so they were the ones that really got me thinking about mm. you know that they had no representation they had no organization behind them no no support you know when the the season dried up they had no work and they went hungry and when the season was in full swing you know they could make five six seven ten bucks a day which was ten times more than their parents or grandparents wow. would make so wow so where do you go from there i mean you you did that and then you came back to the states where you um you're still river guiding no i stayed time. in canada actually State? for okay. um so i ended up starting a a consulting business at that time. I got really lucky while I was in grad school to meet a, a professional that had gone to the same university and started a consulting business. And he had he had pitched to uh, the UN Habitat program, uh, which is the United Nations Center for Human Settlements, to put together a, pro- a process, a democratic process, decision-making process for local economic development. Okay. Local economic development is basically grassroots participants participatory decision making to to build local economies from the ground up so um i partnered with him and ended up spending a year writing a manual actually a four series manual a full process democratic process and tools and workshop tools Mm. toolkit to to be able to come up with these master plans for grassroots uh, development and uh we wrote that manual and it turned into its own business and uh for me, it turned into six years of field testing that process in different communities around the world, from uh, you know, from countries in Africa to uh, the West Bank of Palestine to uh, remote Aboriginal communities in, in Canada. But wow. with the same underlying theme of how do we how do we come together, identify our assets, come up with shared goals and objectives, and, and create you know bottom-up roadmaps yeah to, to get there can you do you feel like sharing any successes and failures in that endeavor well uh, it's one of the things about you know that type of work particularly planning and, and development economics is it's thankless you know you come up with these roadmaps but it takes decades for them to uh to actually come to fruition you know so um so instead of talking about successes, I guess I think of it more in terms of um, the impacts they had on me. Mm. You know, one of the things I think I learned, um, I'm kind of a ver- was a voracious reader in that space, and I think of like the Paulo Freire and his pedagogy of the oppressed, and you know, positioning yourself as the you know the outsider in this development world coming in and having this great impact, and you know, over the years I learned even if you can have an impact it's bullshit to think that way you know in the end it's not what you you are providing in the end it's really what you're receiving from those experiences and we can provide some insights and i never thought of myself as a development practitioner i've always thought of myself as a facilitator of other people's decision making i I don't i don't believe i can come in with any answers because i have no idea right all i know is how to facilitate a process to help you come up with the answers better. And that's kind of what I focused on. And that led, right. it's probably been one of the themes of my, my whole life is if you can come into problems yeah. and, and don't look for the answers, but figure out how to let uh, the people around you collectively find them. Yeah, don't show up with an answer. Nobody wants to meet that guy that shows, oh, I know how to fix your problems. Don't worry. I'm a white guy from the West. I can figure this out. 
no one you. likes that guy. No, you'll get your ass kicked pretty quickly yeah. that way. Huh. So what were you <laughs> doing in Palestine? Um, so I got brought on by the UN Development Program. You know, I'd been field testing this manual and different this process in different places, and uh, UN Habitat recommended me and my partner to yeah. uh, UNDP PAP, which is the program of assistance for the Palestinian people. And they had come together and decided with the Palestinian Authority that um, they wanted to create a regional governance system. Um, Palestine was, at the time, uh, this is 2006, was 2006, 2007, was kind of divided. There was the West Bank and then Gaza. And, um, and then they had their local municipalities and, and rural areas, which had been governed the same way for thousands of years. You know, the headmen of the villages coming together. And, and they believed, or um, governance and development reasons, that having, having regional governance and regional decision-making would, would create a foster a more collaborative environment and, and greater efficiency. So I was brought in to to create what was called the process of district strategic development planning. So they were allocating uh, the West Bank into various districts and they wanted to create the governance structure. So I came in and worked with about uh, 30 to 40 different stakeholders across Palestine um, to kind of come up with this participatory process and to to test it out. Do you speak the language? I don't. No, No Arabic, no... What is the? Do they speak Arabic. Arabic. Yeah, Arabic. Yeah. Yep. And uh, no, fortunately, I had this amazing translator who wow. had been part of like the Geneva process. He was the head translator for that, and yeah. uh, Palestinian guys. So I spent a lot of time with headphones like this on, yeah. <laughs> with delayed responses to questions, <laughs> and that was a really great learning process. But uh, yeah, that was one of the most transformative times of my life. That completely, yeah. completely changed my my worldview. Took a part of the world that I had never really given a lot of consideration to and, and made it the kind of forefront of, of your politics and yeah. values moving forward too and really really shook the worldview when i was there you know i i flew into to israel because that's the way you get there um at a time where i think it was maybe a month after the palestinian elections and um uh, hamas had just kind of overwhelmingly won the elections and over the next few weeks or months the Israelis started going in the the IDF started going in and arresting these Palestinian uh, politicians really taking them elected leaders elected leaders and putting them in jail so that's when Hamas kind of consolidated into Gaza and that's when I showed up good timing (laughs) it was an interesting time and boy I uh I never thought of myself of having much importance in the world. And I mean, at that time I was, you know, in my early thirties and just starting my career. And I showed up in Tel Aviv airport and took me about an hour and a half to walk out of the airport because every hundred yards, another Mossad official would pull me to the side and ask me a gazillion questions and uh, waiting for me to say something wrong so they could put me back on a plane and ship me out of the country. And it was the first time I'd experienced that holy crap, these people know me. They've done their homework and they were waiting for me to come here. Wow. And yeah, that led to some interesting experiences throughout that journey. Um, like I said, that was one of the most uh, amazing and life-transforming experiences. Yeah. But, you know, you have a have a 19-year-old military kid pointing a, an automatic weapon at your head yeah. and getting strip-searched on the way out of the country, clearly to make sure you never want to come back. And... You know, I, I got to experience uh, um, 
kind of being a, an enemy of the state, if you will. Yeah. In a, in a country that I'd never even visited and really had no preconceptions about. Were you fearful of, for your life at any point? Um, actually, no. Maybe briefly. When I first got in, you know, I flew into Tel Aviv. They took me to Jerusalem. Uh, the UNDP program is in East Jerusalem, which is the kind of Palestinian section. Very contentious place. And the first thing they made me do was security training. And the, the, uh, the head of security for UNDP was the former chief of police of uh, Copenhagen, Denmark. Really <laughs> kooky, eccentric Wow. brilliant mind and he's taken me through explaining how my driver has uh, uh, evasive driving training and if he's driving 88 miles an hour with his evasive techniques the snipers can't pick you off and they're fitting me for a flak jackets and telling me how to respond to all these situations and I finally stopped him and asked him I said you're starting to freak me out a little bit like yeah, how likely why, is this why would these Palestinians want to shoot at me when I'm coming there to help them with a the process. And he started chuckling and he said, he said, buddy, it's not the Palestinians, it's the settlers on the highway. It's the Israelis. They think you're colluding with the enemy and they're trying to make life as difficult uh, wow. as, as possible. And, and that shook me. Like, you know, I grew up in a community. I went to an elementary school that was more than 50% Jewish. All my best friends I grew up were with Jew, were, were Jewish. I mean, we're sitting in my yeah. friend Brett's house, one of my brothers. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I always imagined, you know, kind of how the media had spun everything. Like the danger was in one place and the good guys were in the other. And, and I found myself in this context where now I was the bad guy to the people I thought were the good guys. there is no good guy bad guy dynamic it's not right. it's too simple right. I, I, I can't i mean yeah there's good and bad you can see a good thing happening and a bad thing but that there are just on either side of a conflict a good and evil it, it, it that's good for a movie narrative but in real life it doesn't really shake out that way i feel like everyone's convinced that they're the good guy if, if i've never met anyone who was like fuck yeah i'm the bad guy <laughs> and never right. i've never seen that who's like you know it's it's almost too convenient that always, there would be a good and bad guy. I always think of that Maccabee song, or who are the terrorists and who are the heroes. I you know, know it. and there is a what's what's the difference between a terrorist and a freedom fighter, yeah. and it's just perspective. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. Who's writing the story? Mm -hmm. That's the. <laughs> but what I learned from that is, it's I mean exactly what you said. Who's writing the story, and it's what narrative, mm. you know, informs your worldview, and you know how willing are you to 
shake that narrative and revisit your worldview. And yeah. I think so few people are willing to do that. There's some sense of admitting failure or fault or, or um, lack yeah. of knowledge yeah. that some people just aren't willing to, to kind of rewrite, yeah. rewrite those experiences for themselves. And that being was one to, of the first times that happened for me. Yeah, being able to consider that you might be wrong. Right. And then it's one thing to consider that you might be wrong and maybe keeping that shit to yourself, <laughs> but to actually admit it out loud to yourself and then someone else, that's, right. that's not easy. I and mean, that's a, that's a whole development plan and a manual <laughs> we could all use. Looking forward to that one being written. Right. <laughs> okay. So from there, uh, now you were in BC for what you said, six years, six eight, or eight years. Eight years. Yeah. And then, uh, I mean, you're still, you've done so many different things. Like you're still, you're going back to school now for your doctoral thesis or what do you what's your program that's right yeah i'm getting ready to start a doctoral program mm -hmm. and leaving the country for germany tomorrow yeah yep. but uh yeah you know i was doing all that development stuff and uh yeah there's a many other stories and beautiful communities that once again shook my worldview and i could i could spend hours just talking about my time in first nation communities and these yeah, let's, places let's and, talk uh, about that because that's i was going to ask if you'd done anything with with the first nations because there's so much in canada and alaska and and i mean well frankly the entire northern and southern hemispheres where people have been just egregiously screwed uh for centuries that's right yeah um, did, what was your dealing there yeah i mean my my work over the course of two consulting businesses during that time was was either international work um most often with the un or uh how you do development work in the in the developed world which mm. is you know working with the marginalized populations of those places and in Canada in particular you know those are many of those remote First Nation communities yeah. I mean, we could talk about urban First Nations and the challenges there at length but um, I mostly worked with uh, communities you know ranging from the central coast of British Columbia to the interior of the Badlands of Alberta mm -hmm. uh, Western First Nations that were in the process of uh, uh, their treaty processes. So, you know, when I was there, again, I was I was in Vancouver and in Canada at a really unique time. I feel like I've, I've been really blessed to end up in cool places at really interesting times in, in history. And this was a time where the British Columbia government really was investing in uh, their resources. They really wanted to drill for offshore oil, which they, of which they have a lot. Mm -hmm. And... Um, settle mineral claims for the mining industry and whatnot. And in order to do that, they had to get into negotiations with the First Nation communities that had a, um, you know, a, a history of use, of land use in those, yeah. in those areas. And the, the Canadian government, fortunately, is much more, I think, evolved than, than we are in the U.S. in terms of recognizing that uh, those Aboriginal territories. So, Perhaps honoring treaties yes and no yeah uh, they weren't so good either by, yeah. by any means but um um i think as the the 20th and 21st century came along it became you know i think more important i think politicians recognized that the the liberal voting block wanted these issues to be addressed and they couldn't just run over those communities anymore mm -hmm. you know mass media alone made that difficult so they had to get into negotiations with these communities and that meant oftentimes settling treaty claims 
and to un- you have to understand a little bit of a background behind these treaty claims. You know, these these communities were shrunk into smaller and smaller areas till they were on tiny little reservations, yeah. reserves as they call them there. Sometimes from you know a thousand square miles into one square mile island, and um, but they had all these resources in their traditional territories. So the the government, federal and provincial, recognized they had to go through these processes. So that's kind of uh, was really going into full swing when I started kind of getting into that work. So the the first step of those processes were to come up with these comprehensive community plans, which was looking at the past, present, and future of these communities, identifying their kind of traditional territories, traditional uses, um, mapping their kind of current context, current situation, livelihoods, and uh, identifying their their goals and and vision for the future. So this was, um, you know, everything from... Uh, economic development, health, education, healing, culture, yeah. and um, you know, I, I worked in one community, that Sawadena community, which was Kingcom Inlet, and I spent two years uh, working with the from the children to the elders, and really trying to identify those things and come up with this roadmap so they could get to the treaty table with the the most power in hand to yeah. be able to start those negotiations. And how do you? feel that worked out um well i think we did a great job collecting a lot of information um when i say information historical information but more importantly participation um to identify the issues of the present day and people's vision for the future and and, you know these are we talk about a an indigenous community as this this group of homogenous people but they're not you know everyone has different interests and and priorities and bringing and, and in contexts where there's a lot of healing needed, you know, these are places where children were kidnapped and sent to residential schools. So I'm working with people that are my age or 10, 20 years older that had been abused and kidnapped and stolen from their homes. And so there was a lot of healing and trauma in those processes as well. So, you know, creating those, those safe environments, creating um, mutual understanding and and shared goals was uh, was probably the, the biggest benefit of the processes. You know, I it, in our very limited dealings and interactions with First Nations people in Canada and other uh, Indigenous people in Alaska, um, one thing that really struck me, I, I was raised in the South, in Tennessee and Mississippi, and I thought of, for most of my uh, entitled white life, that all the sh- terrible shit that we'd done to people to indigenous peoples had been done a long time ago and that we've been on this path of recovery ever since and it's shocking to learn of people my age and younger who got screwed in those ways and, and we're just never mind marginalized or pushed pushed out but i mean brutalized and taken and had their their uh their culture it wasn't even so much that it was ripped from them. It was it was made to seem like not good enough or uncool, which I think is even worse. You know, uh, the abuse and the the sort of loss of culture isn't an old thing. It's still it's ongoing. It's ongoing in a weird way. So you you got to see that in your own demographic in your own age group. Yeah, I mean, I was in. I visited a residential school that closed in the 90s. So if I had been raised there, I would have been in that school, yeah. you know. And uh, 
people my own age telling stories that you know I couldn't fathom. It definitely yeah. made me rethink a lot of the traumas of mm. my childhood and how insignificant they seemed. And, yeah, you know, again, these experiences—it's what they give you, not right. not what you give them. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, all, all of that history is. It's it's hardly history, you know. No. Even even if these schools closed twenty years ago, I had never understood the concept of, you know, transgenerational trauma oh, before. Yeah. And and seeing how the trauma of one generation trickle down to another, and you think it dissipates over time, and actually sometimes it, it gets even even worse, yeah. you know. And with the pressures of the external world and you know, the access to the internet and television. And that, that was one of the biggest challenges we always faced was the, the elders trying to protect the culture and history and the language. And, you know, the young folks just being like young folks anywhere. Distracted. They want, they want to play basketball and dance to hip hop and right. you know, go party in the city for the weekend. So yeah. um, the, the struggle was not just internal, external. It was no. internal, internal as well. Yeah. So in all, do you feel like um, the impact there, I know you're, you're more focused on the impact on yourself, which is, a, is I think, I, mean, I don't want to say noble, but it's, a, it's more achievable to focus on the impact on yourself. But in, in you know, kind of concrete terms, do you feel like you've you helped? I, I mean, it's a weird thing to ever say that you feel like you helped, but I mean, can you see any, uh, any lasting impact of the work that you did? I think with the relationships that I grew out of that time and, and being able to have some some deeper one-on-one conversations and these meaningful contexts, I think, yes, there has been an impact. But um, from my understanding, at least what my colleagues and friends told me, it was more in the framing of the context. You know, there was a, there's always a sense of hopelessness and despair and disempowerment that yeah. comes along with being a marginalized group. And, you know, I kind of came in with a fresh perspective, but uh, um, an empathy as mm-hmm. well. Um, but I think uh, a positivity is like we're, we're going to look at the past to define the future. Yeah. And um, I think in many ways I was able... My role, I can't say I was able to, but my role was to translate, to be a translator almost between um, these local challenges and the, the language of power, yeah. if you will. Yeah. And um, even though I don't never want to position myself as, as in those pillars of yeah. power, I was essentially not only a bridge to it, but a representative in some cases. So, um, you know, you... As a result, you have to go into those communities and build meaningful relationships of love and trust first. Can't do anything until you yeah. until you do that. And um, yeah, I think it was just the ability to to reframe the challenges in a way that was palatable and understand and uh, yeah, something that could be understood by all stakeholders. Did you get to participate in any ceremony, <coughs> any like indigenous ceremony that sort of thing? I did. Yeah, I mean, I, I got to experience a potlatch, which was pretty amazing um um, a lot of different dances and gatherings i got to see a dance that hadn't been performed in 150 years that's great and that was uh, pretty extraordinary um one point i was actually my first first nations project was uh, a uh, remote uh, eco lodge called quay it was on it was in the traditional territory of the Heltzik First Nation in this beautiful piece of land it's the mouth of the Kwai River um which is essentially a grizzly bear sanctuary. Wow. Um, the 
it was noted as the most pristine watershed in British Columbia, which is That's saying, saying something. Lot. <laughs> and it had been it had been taken by loggers uh, eighty or ninety years ago, raised to the ground, and um, eventually a nonprofit called the Raincoast Conservation Society um, raised a few million dollars from Warren Buffett's sons of all people to buy it back and give it back to the Heltzik. And uh, they got it back, and they were looking for someone that uh, had an understanding of tourism and poverty reduction that could help kind of design this this place um, at the time, not knowing exactly what it would be. And some people connected us together, and that was my first my first job, my first consulting gig. And uh, I don't like using the word consulting so much, but it was my first... Uh, it was my first opportunity to, yeah, to work with one of these communities, yeah. and uh, yeah, we we helped design and create this space that is now a, a wilderness lodge, um, a science and culture camp for Aboriginal youth, where they bring together world-renowned scientists and Aboriginal uh-huh. elders. What's it called again? Quay. Quay. It's K V A I is the traditional spelling of it, yeah, and it's uh, by there. It's on the central coast of BC. Um, it's uh, about a mile south of a place called Namu. Namu is the oldest recorded human settlement that we know of, 20,000 years old of contiguous settlement. Really? Uh, apparently it predates, or it's around the time of the Bering Land Bridge. Yeah. The, that place and the digs there have kind of redefined what we thought about uh, populations in that area. That's cool. Yeah, magical, magical place. But, you know, in the process, I got to take my son, who was eight years old at the time, and he got to go to a summer camp with Celtic kids. And, I mean, David Suzuki was one of the scientists that would come up there regularly, like world-renowned people combined with traditional knowledge. and, And, yeah, I got to be a part of one of those times. I got to be a part of something so much bigger and more beautiful than I could ever even envision yeah and that was my my first professional job so that's pretty hip right out of the gate getting a good one yeah you know sometimes lucky shit happens (laughs) (laughs) well you know luck is uh you got to be there for it and you got to be ready and it sounds like you've done a pretty good job of preparing yourself to be available for luck when it shows up good bad or otherwise Yep, it has its pros and its cons yeah, for sure. It does. <laughs> I'm sure you know. <laughs> so, from from British Columbia, I mean, you've—I don't even know how to track down where you've been and what you've done. But uh, you were also doing a um, project where you were kind of converting, um, if I get this right, like air miles and bonus things, and turning people's ancillary, uh, uh, like bonus money into uh charity i don't know if that's a fair way to put it how would you it's good yeah i mean that's actually exactly the segue i was doing this work in in canada and i'd gone home my family's from germany and i'd spent a couple months visiting the family and um i got exposed to like loyalty programs you know i knew about freaking flyer miles but there was this whole new wave of loyalty programs where you could shop anywhere Mm -hmm. be hundreds of different businesses and you earn this virtual currency you know i think predating the ideas of what you see with blockchain now but it was these virtual currencies that you could earn for various behaviors and uh you know, I'd been working with so many nonprofits that were all competing for the same pools of money and um yeah, I kind of got this idea, and I was always really interested in technology and, and trying to 
incorporate innovative technologies into the work I was doing at the time. And um, I just couldn't shake this damn idea. And I spent six months and meditating on it. And I finally decided to sell out of my my uh, planning consultancy and uh, jump in and try and be a tech entrepreneur and build a technology product. And I had this crazy idea that I could change the world through through entrepreneurship and mm -hmm. that was kind of that you know I went from the environment to economy and uh, as the kind of social anarchist that I was at the time to literally a 180 degree turn into this idea that really if you want to change the world it's going to happen through innovation and the driver of innovation is is capitalism and can you can you operate in that world consciously yeah. and uh, you know rather than focusing on shareholders, focusing on stakeholders. And so I went into this tech world and tried to build this platform and raised a few million bucks in venture capital and built a team. And, and we, we essentially built the software as a service that uh, converted um, unredeemed loyalty points from uh, various partners into tax-deductible charitable donations to about three million charities around the world, and uh, we we learned as we were starting to go through this process that there were billions of unredeemed points that literally just sat each year until they expired, and that was a loss to everybody. Yeah. Um, you know, if you've ever had frequent flyer miles, if you have 10,000 frequent flyer miles, all you can get is a magazine subscription. You know, you need 25, 30,000 miles to get a flight. So that's what it's called orphan points. And they just kind of, they kind of sit there. They're orphan. There's not enough of them to have value. And, uh, and we realized there was billions of dollars worth of them out there. We are weird things, man. I'm so sorry. Like, <laughs> The fact that we would call something like that an orphan point and then call a child without any family an orphan, it's just, God, we're just weird creatures. I'm sorry. That, there you go. Not so conscious capitalism, <laughs> yeah, right? <shit. laughs> oh, sorry. Yeah. Sorry. No, but you're, you're absolutely right. Like, that was, my, those were my first experiences into the corporate world. Yeah. Um, you know, coming from a dad who worked for the biggest company in the world and detesting that kind of space. All of a language, sudden, I was. That language is so yeah. hard to me. I just can't help it. Uh, you know, and language is power, right? And I, I certainly learned that in, our, in native communities. Yeah. You know, words are everything. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but yeah, so we, we saw this opportunity to take this money that was floating in the ether that wasn't having any value for anyone and, and trying to turn it into value and in the process we discovered that the uh many of the companies the loyalty programs they didn't like having those orphan points either because they sat on their balance sheets as a as a deficit as mm. a liability so in some cases airlines that were working on two percent margins to be profitable very very low margins um, had a billion dollars in liabilities and these points floating out there that they had to account for that lowered their value, you know, increased their losses, was not good for their shareholders. And, um, but more importantly, they weren't getting the engagement that they wanted out of it either. You know, yeah. they weren't connecting in a meaningful way with their customers. Right. And um, so we kind of pitched, hey, we can provide this catalog of millions of charities and causes around the world and people can donate those unused points that will turn into cash and and send out to those charities and uh, that would kind of create this win-win-win scenario where the 
where the uh, points holder or the customer would be able to do something good and use their points for something and get a tax deduction out of it. Was uh, it double deductible? So would the, uh, the, the company that came up with the reward and the person who donated it, how did that? Yes and no. That? So okay. it was a, a tax deductible charitable donation for the end user, which okay. would be you or me as the points holder because it's a cost of doing business for the company. And that's a write off anyway. Right, so right. Um, they didn't, they wouldn't get a double whammy out of that. And then mm. of course the charities were getting increased donations. So mm. we started pitching this to huge companies around the world. I mean, gosh, I, I was flying 200,000 miles a year, probably 200 days a year in hotels and putting on a suit, things I'd, <laughs> rarely experienced in my life or never wanted to and yeah. uh and um yeah we ended up signing our our first client in 2012 which was JetBlue Airlines and we were in the process of building the uh the platform for them customizing it for them and Hurricane Sandy hit um JetBlue is in Long Island City New York is where they're based so that was the they're the New York's hometown airline mm -hmm. and uh and Hurricane Sandy hit and they called us like the night before it actually hit landfall and said we want to make sure that we can support our community in this process and we said well hey we've got three weeks till this platform is going to be ready and uh myself and my partners and team kind of put our minds together and decided to hack a little wordpress site overnight um so people could just start making donations and uh literally we called them at nine o'clock the next morning and said we're done we're ready to go live and set it to go live and went out to get some lunch for sushi and neither one of us had slept and just started watching the app and uh at one point we were doing a few hundred dollars a second wow. and within uh four days or so we had raised about six hundred thousand dollars in the app by the time the week or so campaign was over is eight hundred fifty thousand dollars that we raised for uh the american red cross for hurricane sandy relief and yeah. uh I kind of proved out proved out the model a little yeah. bit. Yeah. So in the end, we ended up we signed Red Robin, which is the big gourmet burger yeah. chain, uh, My Coke, Coca Cola, Kellogg's, and uh, you know started getting some some traction and you know really having a little bit of an impact. You know, albeit small, we were a startup, and uh, but uh, yeah, it was one of the highlights for me. It was one of the highlights of my career because. I went into a world that I thought I would yeah. never step foot in, nor did I ever have any interest and thought I was a fish out of water. And, you know, obviously with the help of lots of great people, um, figured it out a little bit. Yeah. It's, it's, it is possible to shoehorn yourself into something you don't necessarily care for, but do it with heart, you know, to do something that you see as a heartless endeavor. You can do that with heart. And that's, that's a, that's a unique trait. And then to have, you know, sold off your business and jumped in head first. I mean, that's a, it, I'm getting kind of a pattern of that here. Like you, you get a vision and you just go for it. So, well, I'm, I want to ask you about this upcoming venture, but I want to know what happened there. I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop because you don't currently do that anymore the, with the. That's right. Yeah. Um, well, honestly, I felt it was slowly starting to eat away at me and, mm -hmm. um, you know, not only the crazy long hours and the and the travel and the stress and stuff that comes along with it, but I was so 
you know, I was so singularly focused, you know, again, like I kind of obsessively read as much as I can when I'm jumping into new endeavors. And of course I read so much about the laser focused entrepreneur and this has to be your greatest passion in life to be successful. And I bought into that 100%. And, uh, you know, and then I started realizing what the impacts of that actually can be, you know, and in part of your life, you're, you're kind of being put on this false pedestal you know, with big titles and, you know, um, TV interviews and finding your name in newspapers and stuff all the time. And it's inflating you on one side and on the other side, because you're so imbalanced, you know, other parts of your life are, are crumbling. And, uh, you know, I had a, a teenage son uh, who I hardly spent enough time with and, uh, probably needed a dad the most at that time and uh, friendships that I completely neglected and my health I'm probably 30 pounds heavier than I am now and yeah. um, you know I I made a personal decision um, that this wasn't the right healthy path for me and compounded with the fact that my investor my investors kind of forced me to fire my first in command my first mm. hire uh literally a week before christmas oh, shit. and Oof. i rejected it and went through a big battle um i ended up finally it was february of 2013 i decided to take my first holiday in three years and went with my best friend in nicaragua to go surfing mm. and um i'm sitting on my surfboard Stressed out, looking down at my big fat belly and pasty white skin that had been in suits and airplanes for three years. And, and I said, holy shit, what am I doing? And I looked over at Dave and I said, Dave, I quit. And he was like, you're done surfing for the day? We've just been out here for a little bit. I said, no, I'm quitting Kula. And I uh, ended up paddling in and um, emailing my board of directors saying I wanted to have a board meeting and a few days later. And only to find out they decided they wanted to fire me too because wow. I was fighting them from firing my my best bud and first in command at the time and uh and ended up literally walking out of that boardroom with my entire um i guess everything that i'd been working on for so long just ceased in a matter of 30 minutes and had no roadmap or what next or what i was going to do and so I just grabbed my, did what I always did in those situations, and I grabbed my whitewater kayak and rented a little cabin in the mountains on a river and spent the next hundred days, you know, kayaking all day, every yeah. day, and, you know, finding those lessons from the river to determine yeah. where, what, where it would take me next. Is that business still in business, Kula? It actually closed last year, mm. you know, so they lasted seven years. I think much changed. Um, within two years after I was gone, everyone, everyone that I had brought in had oh, been cleaned out. Yeah. They moved the company to Atlanta. They tried to redefine it, hire big, expensive CEOs to to try and you know rejuvenate it. And uh, eventually, they they shuttered the doors. Yeah, that's you know that's one of the things about a singular pursuit is when that singular individual is gone, that it can't stand up on its own. You know, I, I learned that lesson. Yeah, I mean, Kula was a collective vision. I don't want to, you know, I might have been the catalyst to start it. I, I've always been good at being the guy to say, hey, that's a damn good idea. Let's do it. Um, a lot of people say, I've got a great idea. This is going to change the world. And they write it down on paper and nothing yeah. happens. Like, if I, if there's one thing that I do is like, 
You know, I'll just say fuck it and dive into the deep end and see what happens. Yeah. And uh, in that case, that's you know I was the catalyst, but the vision was shared between many, right. many passionate people. Yeah. But uh, yeah. I'll, but once those people were out of the picture and all of the early learning that comes along, you know, entrepreneurship is about trial and error. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're not iterating and learning along the way, you um, you're going to fail very quickly. So you learn, pivot, iterate learn pivot iterate that's the the great lean startup method or customer development and so all that initial learning and all the pain points and stuff were eventually lost in the institution so they had to start from scratch yeah there's no one there who knows how to read that river yeah that's right yeah so you're back in a river after that trying to get recentered and uh i what was this five years ago yeah, this was uh, April of 2013. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, what have you been doing since? Huh. Been on the river? <laughs> <laughs> I've been on the river a lot. Yeah. yeah. I've probably kayaked 200 days a year That's since then. So, amazing. Uh, so I, at least I got rid of the pasty skin and big belly. <laughs> but a lot of the other stuff remains. Um, yeah, I, I, I had a short-lived app startup called Gravitly. It was... Uh, it was like Instagram for outdoor athletes, essentially. Yeah, cool. Went to the Philippines, built a team there. Um, I had some relationships in the Philippines from my previous development work over there. And I also had happened to go over to uh, to train some river guides in the northern Philippines. Mm, that's cool. New industry and ended up building a software team, building an app there. Say it, I wouldn't say it failed catastrophically, but it failed pretty, pretty quickly. And... Uh, and then found myself in Switzerland advising startups at a university and originally planned to start a PhD and uh, run their entrepreneurship center. Found that it wasn't the right fit for me at the time. Lots of other chaos in life. Yeah. Uh, did that for about six months. Again, back to the river. And uh, in the process of that Switzerland gig, I ended up going to Macedonia to... Uh, I'd been advising a bunch of venture-backed startups and uh, they... You know, in Switzerland, if you're a junior develop software developer, you're making a quarter million bucks a year. Whoa. So it's very hard for startups to build an yeah. MVP kind of cheap app on the quick. So uh, I ended up. It's interesting. I got on a train and found myself in a little town in in the Allgäu in Germany, where there was a small airport, and uh, had some time off. So I just. Literally looked online, looked at Wizz Air, and looked at all of the different places I could fly for a hundred euros round trip in Eastern Europe, and then uh, went online and uh, started looking for software development companies in there. And one night in a hotel, I probably fired off a hundred emails, and of those hundred emails, the I maybe got ten responses, and seven of them were from Macedonia. Yeah. So at about 2 o'clock in the morning, I booked a flight to Macedonia, got up the next morning and found myself in Skopje in the capital and ended up meeting with a bunch of young software developers to see if I could build those bridges with the Swiss entrepreneurs and stumbled across a group of young guys at the time in their early 20s and they had just graduated university, uh, computer science, and they had to build an app for, uh, for their senior project, essentially. And they built a gimmicky little Android app called Crack Your Screen where you could put it on someone's phone and shake it and it looked like it was cracked. Uh, 18 million downloads later, <laughs> um, they won the Samsung Global App Challenge, won 150,000 euros, became kind of superstars in their tiny little country mm-hmm. of 2 million people, the first startup out of Macedonia. And they took that money to start their own little shop. 
Yeah. And uh, I met these guys, and we just, you know, were immediately like two peas in a pod, speaking the same language. And they had everything they needed except access to those outside markets. And I had the market and didn't have the talent. And um, we just kind of fell into this serendipitous relationship that's still continues to this day. Um, it ended up becoming a, a company. And, uh, you know, they've got 20 to 30 employees now, um, huge clients all over the world. And I actually spent a good chunk of last year kind of as an entrepreneur in residence helping them. They ended up buying me out, buying my business and all my clients out. That's I ended true. up starting a software company but wow. accidentally. Because <laughs> when I got back to the U.S. after being in Europe, um, a lot of entrepreneur friends were looking for development work. And yeah, and yeah just started. It was one of those, you know, you, you're in the right place. You just for happen luck. to know the right people. Yeah. Sometimes the most successful businesses are the ones that are never on the radar that just yeah. kind of show up. And yeah. Yeah, so I ended up spending a number of years pretty much not working and making a living connecting people, connecting Macedonia to the U.S. And uh, doing some really fun stuff, too. Okay. We built the first cannabis ordering app where you could order cannabis online oh, in wow. Colorado, right? When yeah. the, the industry changed, we built some... Um, some really neat e-commerce stuff and uh, sports video apps, all startups. We really focused on addressing a need in the market, which mm -hmm. was helping startups, oftentimes non-technical entrepreneurs, translate their visions into actual products. So I was able to draw from my kind of facilitation planning experience with my developer's technical experience and kind of create that bridge. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that was turned into a great business. And um, but yeah, and then I ended up getting a really fun gig. There was a, um, there's a university. I was in a small town called Buena Vista in the mountains of Colorado. 2,500 people on the Arkansas River. Nice. Um, not a place a lot of people would think of unless you're a whitewater kayaker, then you're in, you're in paradise. And uh, But just over Monarch Pass is a little town called Gunnison, and there's a place called Western State Colorado University. It's a small mountain college. And... Uh, they uh, decided that they wanted to build an entrepreneurship center and um, I was kind of connected with them and that seemed like a great fit so I ended up going there for a year <coughs> they gave me a, they basically said here's a 15,000 square foot building build something cool wow. and uh, make sure we can support innovators in the university and in the community so we uh, raised a few million bucks turned that into uh, a business incubator um, a startup accelerator program, like maker labs for prototyping, meeting spaces, and uh, and a bar restaurant with uh, only local foods and local spirits and whatnot, and uh, and I created this innovation center in a small mountain town, uh, which was a, a really really great fun project, oh, you know, and uh, in a in a community that I was connected to, like I'd spent so many years working in communities that I'd never been to before. Now I was kind of doing development in a, at least in a region that yeah. you know had been my home on and off for twenty years. Yeah, where you're familiar with the river. That's right. It always That's comes right. back to the river with you, man. <laughs> so where you're going now is there a river you can hop on? Oh, there's always rivers that I can hop on. Yeah, yeah. I've uh, I don't know if you kind of got the pattern, but whether yeah. it was Colorado or British Columbia or, or Africa Zambia. or the <laughs> Philippines, like there's a river. Um, I always seem to find a way to yeah. to go float. So um, yeah, um, tomorrow I leave for for Germany. Mm -hmm. and there'll be uh, 
there will be many, many rivers metaphorically and physically yeah. to, to travel down. What's your new program? What is it? What's it called? So um, I should I should speak cautiously because nothing is fully confirmed yet. Yeah. Um, I haven't signed on the dotted line, but um, I'm going to uh, meet with. Uh, it's a university program in Germany. It's a management school, business school. Um, but uh, which is ironic because I dropped out of business yeah, school 20, 22 years ago thinking, oh, hell, I don't ever want to do anything like that. It's all point A, right? Yeah, and back back full circle. And uh, it's a business school, but I'm um, the research I'm doing is going to be on innovation process, and uh, it's kind of a combination of innovation and, and positive psychology, hmm. specifically focused on, focused on uh, flow theory. I gotcha, and, uh, yeah. For I guess if you don't know, flow theory is this, uh, this state of uh, of peak performance and, and focus and, and happiness, I guess, that uh, is elusive for many people. And, and I started reading about flow a year ago. I was, we decided to take a little trip around the world, did a little sabbatical. I was in Macedonia, traveling around Eastern Europe and Southeast Asia. And I was kind of doing a combination of playing on rivers and and meeting with with startups and entrepreneurs in, yeah. in that space and ended up picking up a book called the rise of superman by stephen kotler which is all about uh you know uh, extreme sports athletes and this flow state that they're able to get into and the you know the the idea behind it is that you know flow this amazing peak state of performance and happiness is really really difficult to achieve but one thing that can trigger it almost on command is the the fear of risk you know the risk of life and limb mm -hmm. and when you have that that risk factor in there it triggers you into that state of concentration yeah. and you know you can talk about the neurobiology behind it but now it's being proven with EEGs and other things that right. this is there was a, a psychologist, um, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, who kind of came up with this concept in the 70s, and it was always considered a theory. And my guess is in the next few years, it's going to move beyond theory because we're actually able to chemically and electrically track this yeah. in the brain. And so I was reading this book, um, and of course, a lot of the, the interviews in this book are with whitewater kayakers and people that I know, and, and it immediately a light bulb went off and what I realized was um, I kind of been a flow addict my whole life and when I was in that state of presence and concentration I was at my best and I was at my happiness happiest and when I was on more untethered not on the river you know on river or in land um, you know I wasn't in, in not as good of a place and I was kind of seeking that next that next experience and so so many things resonated and I kind of spent the past year meditating on this process and trying to understand well if I could take what I I could trigger on command this state of flow on a river how can I do this in the other aspects of my life particularly in my creative endeavors yeah. and uh, so I, I kind of put together the pieces of what I wanted to discover and, and learn in this process and shipped it off to a bunch of uh, uh, universities and professors around the world and turned out uh, within 24 hours uh, this gentleman from Germany ended up uh, replying saying I want to like to Skype with you next week and talk to you about this more and we started chatting and Tried, I started to explain this idea of flow to him, and he said, oh, yeah, yeah I get this. I know everything about it. And I'm thinking, what does a, a business professor know about this? So um, he decided we wanted we should meet in Berlin, where I'm leaving for tomorrow. And 
And I figured, well, if I'm going to meet this guy and fly across the world, I better get a, a deeper sense of what he, uh, what he does and what his research is like. So I started reading some of his publications, including his PhD dissertation. And I, I couldn't believe what I read because he did his research on um, innovation in the freestyle whitewater kayaking industry. Turns out this guy has been a, a kayaker as long as, mm-hmm. as long as I have. So, uh, actually he doesn't even know that I know yet. Oh, that's great. So we're going to, we're going to meet in a couple of days and have quite a few interesting things I to talk imagine. about. But yeah, once again, the, the river bonds yeah. and the river teaches so yeah. much. You know, I'm talking to a lot of climbers recently, um, and people who really are at life and limb sort of situations. It's a, it's a unique uh, perspective on how to handle anything, how to conduct yourself the same way that a person would climb and the way they would focus and the things that are and are not important sort of drop off. It's really cool to see that uh, translated into other things. And for you to talk about happiness in business, in a business context, I think it's a highly overlooked aspect of our working lives you know, in school you're the idea of being happy is an abstract concept concept that might be a consequence of you making it quote unquote someday right. uh, so to teach the the value of happiness outside of your you know financial success right. is i think a worthy goal it's uh it's a, i'm a very maybe overly my partner would probably tell me i'm an overly rational person um, but i'm very deconstructive by nature and one of the things that's really gotten me interested in this flow thing this flow state and flow psychology is the science that's starting to kind of catch up to the mm-hmm. to the theory and now there's kind of a new term for flow which is called transient hypofrontality and uh it's a big word but basically what it means is uh, you know, our brain, part of our brain is called the prefrontal cortex. Right. And in the prefrontal cortex, it houses a lot of different functions. But one of the functions that it houses is like doubt, yeah. you know, self-confidence, these types of kind of uh, rational kind of uh, grounding thoughts, yeah. if you will. And uh, when you're in the flow state, your prefrontal cortex actually slows down. So that does a number of things. It's like when you've heard of, you know, athletes, how everything starts moving slow or the the net of the basket gets much bigger or you're able to see moves before you actually do them, you know. And and that's because the the prefrontal cortex of your brain is slowing down and as is as is those feelings of, of doubt and uncertainty yeah. that, that come along with it and uh, you know I find that to be something that's going to be really uh, interesting to explore yeah. in the future as well I will say uh, you are clearly a much more intelligent guy than I am I'm a I'm a if I could make a living as a dumbass, I'd be a billionaire but <laughs> you and uh, me both buddy but one thing that I'm gonna I'm gonna just I don't know if call you on it's something that gets me because I hear it a lot. Uh, I've had lots of discussions with people about evolution and the idea that it's just a theory. Mm-hmm. I'd like to just say that at the very end of the scientific method is theory. Mm-hmm. It's theory is not the beginning. The, the beginning is a question. So you got question, uh, hypothesis, test, and then theory. Mm-hmm. So just, just it's like my own little <laughs> thing that ma- I don't know why it matters to me. Just because people are like, oh, it's just a theory of evolution. It's just a theory. 
theory is a pretty big deal. So, uh, well, yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, you know, about perspective. Yeah. And, you know, is there really truth? You know? Oh, I boy. Think, I, yeah. I mean, I think that's, we're, we're all dealing in, in yeah. theory. Yeah. It's like, what can we just ground within the context, mm-hmm. you know, with the lenses that we see things through? I actually, I have a, a quote that I share with a lot of people all the time, um, Marcel Proust. He says, the true voyage of discovery is not in seeing new lands, but seeing with new eyes. That means, to me at least, is, you know, we're all perceiving things through particular lenses. And, you know, we may be seeing the same object or the the same place, but we're seeing it through such distorted distorted lenses along the way. And the idea is not to understand that object you're looking at, but it's to translate the lens that you're looking at it through. And Mm -hmm. if you can define those distortions in the lens, those traumas, those collective experiences, the things that contort the way we see the world, that's where the truth is, is defining the lens and not the actual um, object or place or space. Spoken like a true fucking river guy. (laughs) You guys and your interpretation of the river. That's perfect, man. I love that. I I think about that sort of thing quite often uh, because we are on a journey through many lands and it's uh, it's like the whole Joseph Campbell idea that, you know, the hero's journey isn't about, um, you know, seeing these new lands. It's just seeing your home for the first time with new eyes. Mm -hmm. And uh, on our search for home, (laughs) I hope to arrive there with new eyes and a new, new means of interpreting whatever it is I think, whatever I think I think <laughs> so thank you man thank you for uh, sharing your tale and incredibly uh, I don't know I wish you good luck and um, it seems like you're already successful to me I don't want to wish you success because I think you're already in, in so far as I can measure success you're you're happy uh, and you're able to pursue fun and interesting things so you've already made it in my book but Whatever, whatever's next for you, I hope it uh, continues to be kick-ass. I don't know where it's going, but uh, so far so good, I guess. But I wish you guys the same as well. I, Thanks, can, I can tell you if I wasn't embarking on the journey that I'm doing, I might be hopping in a van and <laughs> driving across the world somewhere. So We hear that a lot. <laughs> You'll see a lot of beautiful rivers along the way. Yeah. You know, we've made a point of, of getting in. Oh, I don't always have, have a boat. And sometimes we just get in and our bare feet and no clothing. We just get in the river and get good and cold. And you never regret it. It's sometimes really hard to get your ass in there, but uh, you're always glad you've done it. So That's it. It's, uh, it's just taking the first plunge, mm-hmm. you know, when I feel like that's uh, something I talk to my son because I'm leaving tomorrow and I saw him yesterday. And I was like, just don't be afraid to take that first plunge and figure out where to go from there. Because usually it'll, you'll end up in amazing places. Agreed. Thanks, Garrett. Thank you, Andrew. It's a pleasure.
Hi, Tiffany here, saying thank you for listening to the Monkey Tooth Podcast. If you haven't already, or it's been a while, check out our website, mtp.dog. There's plenty of information there. An about tab with a little bio on Andrew, myself, and our dog Pele. There's also a van build tab detailing how we did our van conversion. A journal tab and we, as an Andrew, are doing our best to keep that up to date. And last but not least, a contact tab where you can leave your thoughts, suggestions, or questions. You can also contact us on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram, Monkey Tooth Podcast. If you would like to donate and or subscribe to the cause, you can go to Patreon and GoFundMe at Monkey Tooth Podcast. Patreon is not just a place to subscribe. We post lots of content there as well. We greatly appreciate each and every one of you. Love to all.